Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, taxes, the concept of taxation, does a lot of work in U.S. public discourse, though its role is not consistent. When reporting on a wished-for social good, like universal health care or improved infrastructure, the cost to taxpayers is presented as central. Raising taxes is a synonym for increasing hardship on working people, and unironically offered as the reason those same people can't have nice things, like health care and infrastructure. At the same time, but on a different page, we read that corporations like Zoom, Amazon, and Netflix are super successful, exemplary. What magic do they have to earn themselves such fortune? And, oh, yeah, they pay zero or near zero federal tax on their profits. But that's complicated and sort of clever and anyway legal. So what are you going to do? Except, remember that you can't have nice things because taxes. We'll talk today with two people who, while recognizing that it's not the sole source of inequality, have thoughts about what we can do about blatant, enduring, and powerful unfairness in U.S. tax policy. Dorothy A. Brown teaches tax policy as Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law. She's author of the new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, how the tax system impoverishes black Americans, and how we can fix it. Amy Hanauer is executive director at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy and Citizens for Tax Justice. They've been tracking corporate tax avoidance and its societal impact for decades. We'll hear from them both this week on Counterspin. But first, a very quick look back at recent press. You may remember the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, in which mobs of angry white people broke violently into the building, forcing the panicked evacuation of lawmakers and resulting in the deaths of five human beings, as an unveiled attempt to disrupt and, in their minds, overturn presidential election results they didn't like, and were told, falsely but repeatedly, were fraudulent. You remember it that way because that's what happened. Hold that thought tightly as you watch that day's events morph under elite media's hand. Politico's April 12th report on Josh Hawley, the Republican Missouri senator who cheerled the assault on the Capitol and on the Democratic process, tells readers... The freshman senator drew widespread attention for leading the January 6th effort to block the acceptance of the Electoral College results, quote, a controversial stand that liberals and some Republicans claim undermined faith in the political system, close quote. At a certain point, there's little left to say. If your news source describes a benighted, violent, racist, fatal exercise in trying to overturn election results as a controversial stand opposed by liberals, you need to look for other ways to learn about the world. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. FAIR. 
the centuries-old expression about nothing being certain except death and taxes reflects a general belief that these things are universal and come to us all, despite apparent differences. It's not true, of course, and being a critical thinker today means reckoning with supposedly neutral systems whose disparate impacts on different people are not accidental. We like to think of law as something that exists somewhere and we just find it and apply it, when in reality law is something created and forged for purpose. And sometimes you can still see the fingerprints. In the United States today, the median white family, not average, but median, half above, half below, has a net worth that's a weird term that means wealth or assets minus debts or liabilities, eight times that of the median black family. That's the same gap as 40 years ago, despite gains that black people have made in income and education and all of the things that you do to accrue wealth. So what's going on? And what does it have to do with our system of taxation? Dorothy A. Brown is Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law and author of the new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. It's out last month from Crown. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Dorothy Brown. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's first say... Black people are underpaid and are shuttled into work sectors that are underpaid, but your focus is not employment income, how much money comes in, but tax policy, which is completely related, but it's not the same, right? That's right. So, you know, how much income we have helps inform how much we owe in taxes, but what my research showed is when black and white Americans engage in the same activity, whether it's work, whether it's owning a home, whether it's getting married, whether it's paying for college, tax policies subsidize the way white Americans engage in the activity while disadvantaging the way black Americans engage in the activity. Well, so let's just get into that a little more. What are some of the ways that that works, that that happens? Well, we can start with what you talked about, with which jobs. So we know that there's occupational segregation, right? Some jobs are disproportionately filled by white Americans, and other jobs are disproportionately filled by black Americans. But there are tax subsidies associated with jobs. Think employer-provided retirement accounts. Any money that the employer puts in a retirement account, any money you put in a retirement account, is not taxed today, even though it's wage income. It will be taxed later when you retire and withdraw the amount. And presumably in 20, 30, 40 years when you retire, you won't be working, and the amount of income taxes you pay on that retirement amount will be less, right? right? If you were to take the money today, add it to your other wage income, you'd be paying higher taxes. So it's a big tax break. Well, what we know are jobs that are disproportionately held by white Americans are more likely to come with retirement benefits. But even when a black American is fortunate enough to get such a job, we are less likely to participate and contribute to that benefit 
And if we are able to participate to that retirement account, we're more likely to withdraw an amount early that's subject to a tax penalty. So how does this happen? Research shows black college graduates are more likely to send money to their parents or grandparents Mm -hmm. to help them pay for necessities, Mm -hmm. whereas white college graduates are more likely to receive money from their parents and grandparents that could help them with a down payment for a home, pay for K-12 private school for their children, so that even if, miraculously, we were to find a white American and a black American making the same amount, we know that doesn't happen, right, because of race discrimination in the labor market. But even if we find that, the black worker, because their parents and grandparents suffered under Jim Crow, is going to be more likely to have less after-tax dollars because they're going to send some money home. Right. You know, Jeremy Greer from the Corporation for Enterprise Development told me, income helps you get by, but wealth helps you get ahead and allows you to yes. think about the future. And it's, it's so critical. And if you don't have to think of it that way, well, then you don't think of it that way, you know? Um, that's right. That's right. You know, uh, and that's so, okay, well, okay, that's just the law is, is what we yeah. would hear, you know? And yet we see corporations write tax law favorable to themselves. We see Congress carve out exceptions or offer rebates for specific individual companies. Like it looks like sausages being made. And yet we're somehow (laughs) disinclined to think that that corruption and cronyism might include systemic racism. Absolutely. And part of the problem is the IRS doesn't collect or publish statistics based on race. So people can walk around saying tax law is colorblind because when you go to the the IRS statistics, it has nothing up there dealing with race. In fact, I've been writing in this area for a couple of decades, and the typical white tax law professor ignores what I say or pushes back or marginalizes what I say because their response is, There's nothing in the code about race. There's nothing in tax law about race, Mm -hmm. which ignores the disparate impact based on race. I mean, we've seen this in Georgia with voting rights. There's nothing in the Republican-passed legislation that's going to make it harder for black people to vote that says black people, we want it to be harder for you to vote. Right. But we all know that's going to be the impact and that that was the intent behind the law. So the notion that you have to have a law say we discriminate against black people before we can find the law actually discriminates against black people defies logic and history. And, you know, everyone and everyone, I use the term loosely, but people agree that black people are behind are disadvantaged, whatever their explanation for that is. But then when it comes time to intervene, to allow, not help, but allow to stop preventing black people getting ahead, it becomes a whole different conversation that's about the intervention and its unfairness. And I just wanted to ask you, why have previous policy responses failed to adequately address the wealth gap, and and then what sort of responses could? 
So, you know, we have a lot of research on the wealth gap, and we have proposals for how to address it. But part of the problem is you have the left and the right seeing different causes of it. Mm -hmm. And I have quarreled with both. The left sees this mainly as a function of historical discrimination that it's brought into the 21st century. The right sees it as bad behavior on the part of black Americans, Mm -hmm. right? So the left gets it wrong in this instance. Yes, it was historical discrimination, but the reason why wealth doesn't work the same way for white Americans as black Americans today is because of choices white people make. So let's take home ownership. Most white homeowners live in neighborhoods with very few black Americans. That's how they like it. That's what the research shows. So progressive whites who live in neighborhoods with virtually no black neighbors are part of why homeownership builds more wealth for white Americans than black Americans. Because black Americans typically live in racially diverse or all black neighborhoods, and the homes are not valued as greatly as the exact same home in an all-white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Why? Because white prospective home buyers don't want to live in those neighborhoods, so they're not valued as high. So that's not historical discrimination. That's 21st century today discrimination by white homeowners. Right. On the other side, we have the right that says, well, black people just need to act more like white people. We need to get married. We need to buy homes. I've already told you why buying a home isn't the ticket to wealth for black Americans the way it is white Americans, but getting married. My research shows that when white people get married, they're more likely to get a tax cut. How? Because the tax law favors married couples with one single wage earner. One person who works in the paid labor market, the other person who works at home. That couple gets a tax cut. Couples like my parents, my mother was a nurse, my father was a plumber, they made roughly equal amounts. They don't get a tax cut. And for decades, they paid higher taxes. So you have conservatives saying, black people, you just need to get married. And my research shows, well, when we do, we don't get a tax cut. So. Part of the road to a solution is really understanding the problem. And one of the key pieces that I make in my book is the system of America for building wealth is designed for white wealth. It's designed for how white Americans engage in their activities, whether it's marriage or buying a home, in a way that black Americans simply cannot replicate. And until we come to terms with our racist wealth-building system, no solution is going to fix it. Well, let me ask you, finally, you've been working on this for a while, and you've seen the interest in the topic or even the belief that it is a topic (laughs) um, shift. (laughs) Uh, After George Floyd's murder, you say in this Bloomberg Businessweek piece from March, Suddenly, people wanted to talk about race and tax. I don't want you to burn any bridges with reporters, but I am curious, when you talk to media, where do you have to start? Do you find people disbelieving? Are they ready to see that this is real? And it doesn't have to be media, but just the general public. Do you feel like the moment's right to push this forward? I do, and I will say this. Post-George Floyd, the reporters who have called me have been terrific and have been in a listening mode. 
they have not been in an argumentative mode. Mm -hmm. I will say pre-George Floyd, white reporters that I've talked to, that I've tried to talk about race, have been very dismissive. And they're different people. Those people did not come back to me post-George Floyd, right? The people who came to me were all new new white reporters who I hadn't talked to before who actually saw the moment and wanted to get better informed. So that's kind of heartening, to be honest with you. I haven't had the pushback. And I will say over the years, the audiences that gave me the most comfort were the general public audiences. Mm They were hungry for what I had to say and curious and were listening and attentive. It was the white academics who didn't want to hear anything I had to say. So the general public has always been an encouragement for me in doing this work. We've been speaking with Dorothy Brown, Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law. The book is The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. It's out now from Crown. Thank you so much, Dorothy Brown, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. You probably aren't surprised to learn that Zoom made a lot of money this past year, though the fact that their profits rose more than 4,000% is remarkable. It seems like textbook capitalism. The company sold a better mousetrap, or at least a more popular one. What, though, do we do with the fact that on its $660 million take, Zoom paid zero in federal taxes. What textbook is that from? They aren't alone, of course. At least 55 of the country's largest corporations paid no federal income taxes, according to new research. They've figured out a game, but it's us that are getting played, not just as individuals who have to pay our own taxes, but as a country that is constantly claiming that we can't afford various social goods while handing billions of dollars back to companies whose profits are, after all, ultimately built on individuals and on social goods. Joining us now to talk about that problem is Amy Hanauer. She's executive director at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, as well as Citizens for Tax Justice. She joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Amy Hanauer. Thank you so much, Janine. It's great to be here. Them that's got shall get is an old story, but it's still wrong and galling. These companies are making money hand over fist. So what's going on? What are they doing to get out of paying federal taxes? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So you're right. My organization, Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, found that 55 of the largest Fortune 500 and S&P 500 corporations paid zero in taxes despite being profitable in 2020. And, you know, together they had 40, those 55 companies had $40.5 billion in income. So if you looked at our statutory tax rate of 21%, you would think that they would have paid $8.5 billion. But instead, they actually got $3.5 billion in rebates. 
And, you know, your question is how? Well, we have a corporate tax code that is just riddled with loopholes that enable companies like this to get away with avoiding taxes in ways that really leave regular people responsible for a larger share of our tax payments and leave us unable to pay for the things that our communities need. Well, that's the question. It sounds like unfairness. It is unfairness. But is it illegal? Well, that's the great question. And should you blame their accountants and their lawyers or should you blame Congress? And I think the responsibility lies clearly with the lawmakers who have created a tax code that enables this kind of avoidance. So we have just a handful of tax loopholes that people can use, that companies can use. One is we have an unequal tax rate between profits earned overseas and profits earned here domestically. If that were made the same, a lot of this tax avoidance could be stopped in its tracks. We have ways of compensating executives with stock options that enable companies to tell their stockholders that they're highly profitable and earning one thing, but then allow them to tell the IRS that they're far less profitable and earning less and and reduce what they pay in taxes as a result. So there are just a whole bunch of these kinds of loopholes, and I think it rests clearly with Congress and the president to close these loopholes and get a more rational tax system in place. Well, I wanted to just say ITEP's findings on corporate tax avoidance are based on available data because the secrecy is rather the point, and that's part of the problem also, right? Well, that's right. And of course, you at FAIR have looked at this kind of issue for a long time, but We could have more transparency. We could require, particularly for those overseas earnings, we could do a lot more to say that that these corporations have to divulge more to the American public. And I think a related issue is that we could just do a lot more to empower the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, to be able to enforce the tax code because they are underfunded and every dollar that the IRS gets results in much more than a dollar in returns to the American people. So we could be more transparent and we could do a better job of enforcing even the laws that we have as well as fixing these laws. Well, let me ask you a question about history. I know that ITEP has been measuring this for decades, so it didn't start with Trump right? You know, and also there have been efforts to fix it, uh, these loopholes, and how has that fared? Can you tell us a little bit about of the history on this? That's a great question. The fact is that this has been a problem for a long time under administrations of both parties, and it also got a lot worse with the Trump tax regime. So of the 55 corporations that paid nothing, there are another 26, 26 corporations subset of those that have actually paid no taxes if you take all three years of the Trump tax regime combined. And the reason is that the Trump tax law lowered the tax rate, it failed to close loopholes, and it actually made the problem of overseas tax avoidance worse in a way that they said they were going to make it better. So it has been a problem 
under both parties, but it certainly got worse with the Trump tax law. And I think that's where we see some potential promise for reform going forward. Well, let's talk about that. Are there things concretely that could be done now? And we understand that sometimes, you know, one measure and then another measure and then another, it doesn't have to necessarily be a sweeping thing. But are there things that could be done right now? Absolutely. As I mentioned, we think we ought to equalize the tax rate between income earned offshore, profits earned offshore, and profits earned domestically. There's no reason why a corporation should be able to move jobs overseas or move equipment overseas and then pay a lower tax rate. There's another challenge with depreciation where corporations are able to write off a lot of the costs of their equipment and they're able to write it off very quickly. And that's another thing that the Trump tax law made worse. We think we ought to be able to depreciate equipment at the rate that it actually wears out and and that that's a much more rational way of doing things. And then, as I mentioned, we could end the tax break for stock options that enables corporations to say they earn one thing to their shareholders and say something different to the American government. So there are all of these fixes out there. And I think actually the Biden administration is is taking quite a few of these on in ways that are pretty encouraging. And you know, that would be kind of a generational shift, Janine, that would be different from anything that, that I think we've seen in a long time of looking at these issues. Is there anything you would call on reporters to maybe dig into more deeply or to jettison <laughs> as frameworks? Or is there anything you would like to shift in terms of media's way of addressing this set of issues? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The Biden plan raises the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. That will make a difference. And I know there's negotiations with some members of Congress and of the Senate that may change that. He also raises the offshore tax rate, so he doesn't equalize it, which is what my researchers recommend, but he does raise it about halfway back up. So the offshore tax rate will be 21% and the overall tax rate will be 28%. And the other really great thing that I think the Biden plan does is it just simply imposes a minimum tax so that if your accountants and attorneys are able to identify a bunch of loopholes, you still, as a corporation, would pay a minimum tax of 15% on your book profits. So we think that would make a big, big difference, and we definitely think it's a ripe area for reporters to explore because one of the challenges with our tax code is that most people don't understand it very well, including many members of Congress. So it's exciting that the Biden administration wants to take this on, I think that they really get that just looking around, looking at the problems that we've had in the United States over the past year, and then recognizing that some of our very most profitable corporations are not contributing to our basic needs, that just doesn't kind of add up, doesn't seem right. We've been speaking with Amy Hanauer from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy and Citizens for Tax Justice. You can find them online at itep.org and ctj.org. Amy Hanauer, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Janine, it was great to talk to you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.